Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Shared Decision Making in Today's Clinical Reality, is brought to you by the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning, and supported by an educational grant from Genentech. Welcome to this activity, Optimizing Shared Decision Making in Lung Cancer. I'm Dr. Yasser Lamin, Assistant Professor of Thoracic Oncology at MD Anderson. I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. George Simon, Professor of Oncology uh, at MD Anderson also. We will be joined by Dr. Jack West, who will introduce himself. Hi, I'm Dr. Howard Jack West. I'm a medical oncologist and associate clinical professor at the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in Duarte, California, where I specialize in thoracic oncology. Today, we will be discussing best practices and strategies in optimizing shared decision-making in patients with lung cancer in the clinic. When a clinician hears the term shared decision-making, they may think that it takes too much time and effort in an already too short time frame during a patient visit. What are some current realities facing physicians as it relates to their clinical practice? I think one of the challenges that uh, physicians face when considering SDM is all the other pressures uh, in their daily lives and practice. The reality is that oncologists, like many other physicians, are pressed increasingly to see more patients in less time. We have documentation demands with uh, EPIC and other uh, electronic medical records, and and that needs to be uh, done basically through the course of a day. Orders need to be signed. And so shared decision-making, while a great concept, is one that I think some physicians have some resistance to just because of the concern for the added time it would take in a world where it's harder and harder just to get through things that are expected because we're having more turnover issues. You have very limited amounts of time. And so can we do this with the time that's available to us? So in the current clinical practice context, there is clearly increased demand on patient physicians' time. Physicians are required to see more patients, uh, document at the same time, and uh, allow time still to interact with patients in a fruitful manner. There's also a a shortage of oncologists in the country, and then that is compounded by a physician burnout problem that has been recognized throughout the country. Given all these constraints, and all that being said, I think SDM is still important to ensure that patients are allowed to participate in the decision-making, and SDM practices should be incorporated very early on in the discussion with the patients so that the time is not just optimally utilized, but also very fruitfully utilized. What sort of infrastructure at a physician's institution or hospital can support shared decision-making? I think that the institution itself needs to really buy in and make it a priority, ideally even to uh, articulate this as an uh, expectation and, and incentivize it in some way. Uh, or at least to create the tools that make it easier to succeed. That can involve things like having scribes to help with the documentation uh, when uh, docs are in the clinic. It could include building in smart phrases uh, that can help make it easier to document uh, shared decision-making because I think one of the other challenges uh, is that you can have these conversations, but if they're not documented, 
uh, they're considered to not have happened. And so it's not just doing it, but documenting it. So uh, scribes, building in smart phrases that can make it easier to put that in, and uh, training in this, and just uh, helping articulate uh, the expectations, giving written materials or videos or live uh, training to help uh, oncologists be able to integrate this into their daily routines. I agree with Dr. West that SDM, for it to work, uh, it has to be integrated and be, become part of each institute and each hospital culture. And uh, for that uh, to, be, to be integrated into the daily practice of our physician, I think resources like training to physician and to advanced nurse practitioner should, should be provided videos and algorithm that would help the physician to go through uh, the process of shared decision making would be helpful as well uh, to physicians to get more and more used to this concept as we uh, help our cancer patients go through their journey of treatment. I agree. Um, I think this is a situation where we can borrow a page from the heart surgeons. A heart surgeon, uh, a senior heart surgeon, usually has the patient's chest opened by a team and closed by a team. He is present during the critical portions of the operations. So his critical skills are utilized optimally while his support staff open and close chests and uh, give routine care. Similarly, in this context, the, the uh, oncologist time can be optimally utilized if some of the support staff and physician extenders can take over the role of going over medications, uh, answering routine patient questions, asking, uh, answering scheduling questions and logistical questions, leaving some of the, the key decision-making questions uh, to the oncologist. Alternatively, another way to sort of decrease the load on the oncologist is for routine clinical visits where just the labs have to be reviewed and the patient go on for further chemotherapy could be entirely taken over by physician extenders, leaving the oncologist free to deal with the situations that need critical decision making. Might some physicians believe that shared decision-making allows the patient to dictate to the physician regardless of a physician's best judgment? If yes, how can this be overcome? There are some physicians, I think, who may be concerned that uh, shared decision-making implies some greater autonomy for a patient that could be threatening, but I would say that uh, this doesn't need to be the case, that you're not going to, as a physician, present options that are poor ones. Uh, the concept is really to present and discuss the options throughout a continuum of reasonable ones that may not necessarily be the absolute top choice for the, uh, for the physician, but would include ones that are certainly in the range of what would be reasonable, and then integrate a patient's perspective on their own personal priorities. So I would say that this should not uh, lead to any expectations that a physician would be expected to give uh, a treatment that they uh, find uh, inappropriate. Uh, it, if somebody uh, doesn't have kidney failure, they don't get uh, a replacement kidney. You know, you don't get a kidney transplant. So uh, there, there is always the bounds of what is appropriate medical care. This just uh, is a... Uh, 
change, a shift from a prior, more paternalistic approach where the expectation was that a physician would tell the patient what they should do and the patient should not and accept that. But now to say, well, we could think of these two or three options, they're all reasonable and have uh, pros and cons to them. And this allows the uh, patient to provide some input, make a selection and buy into this plan. I've always viewed patient decision making as a partnership. It is taking into context the clinical realities combined with patient preferences. And you understand the patient preferences and, and using the current clinical realities and situations, you come up with a plan that is optimal in the setting of what the patient wants. So in, in a sense, it's always a partnership, a mutual decision-making process. Most physicians that I know of don't have the my way or the highway uh, attitude. It's always trying to come up with what is the best treatment option for this particular patient who is going through this particular situation. And that, by definition, is an essential component of shared decision making. I agree with this. And I think it all comes down to that training ourselves as a profession that our care going forward is going to be centered about the patient and it's going to respect their philosophy, their views, their personal preferences. So it's not as if, uh, physician, if patients are making medical decisions. No, they're just picking from a, a continuum, as Dr. West said, of uh, all valid uh, clinical options and picking what would suit their social circumstances, what, that should, uh, what, what would suit their uh, background and their understanding uh, and their philosophy in life. So I think it comes down to the, to, the, that, to the idea that we as physicians have to adopt this new culture and see how it's going to improve ultimately patient care and lead hopefully to better patients' outcome and patients be more satisfied about their care. I agree. And sometimes the patient may actually punt the decision to you and ask you, what would you do, doc, if you were in my position? In that context, you're free to give them what you think is the best treatment option for them. Might some physicians be hesitant to share specific information about treatment options to patients? If yes, which ones are most common? Why may this be the case, and how can this be overcome? There are going to be some gaps in what a physician presents to a patient, and that's based on all sorts of things. It may be that a physician just doesn't know what a certain treatment is going to cost, and, and that is because it may vary from plan to plan and over time and individual circumstances. Uh, there may be unknowns just in terms of toxicities, particularly when a physician doesn't have a lot of experience with that. I think there is a concern that physicians may filter the uh, options that are presented to those that are available at that center and the ones that that physician has the, the greatest experience with. And for that, it, it does make sense if a, if a patient has heard the options and they might have some awareness of a different option through outside learning on the internet, etc. Well, they can get a second opinion. They might also ask the physician for a recommendation for someone in the area to give a second opinion that would either corroborate the choices that have been presented to them or maybe offer others. So, yes, there's always uh, a, a limit in what is being uh, presented to what 
is recommended or at least within a range. Um, and a patient is certainly entitled to try to uh, clarify how those recommendations match with other things they may learn about outside of that, that setting. I, th I think that most physicians tend to share uh, all the information that they know with their patients. Uh, of course, there are some limitations in some cases, like uh, the physician not having the familiarity with the treatment or the uh, physician not having the necessary knowledge uh, in some areas. But in most cases, I think that they would be willing to share most of the information. Having said that, I do think that patients, especially in, 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 this, um, in, in this time, tend to educate themselves about their diseases, tend to use to uh, go to, to the webs, to, uh, to the internet, to learn more about their diseases and about their options. And in that context, I think bringing back the information they gather and discussing it with their physicians can be very helpful. Also considering getting a second opinion might be really helpful in that scenario. Uh, yes, sir, I agree entirely. Um, in, in the past, uh, the standard of care is pretty much uniform across the country. And there, there can be, there may be some variations in its application, but it's generally standard across the country. Where I find a difference or a dichotomy is in clinical trials. And we as a group are very good about offering our patients clinical trials that are available at MD Anderson. Um, sometimes our patients are traveling from eight hours, nine hours away, uh, or even a four or five hour plane ride to come and see us. So over the years, um, I've become cognizant of that and have tried to educate the patients about possible clinical trials that, might, that they may have available closer to home, or at least uh, give them the resources to search out the clinical trials that are available to home so they can minimize this long uh, uh, travel times and, and other ancillary expenses. So I think the di big differences come in the menu of clinical trials that are available in a particular center or in a particular state or in a particular region. And the patients should be encouraged to, uh, uh, to communicate with their local oncologists and also see what resources they have locally compared to the resources and clinical trials that are available at our institution. Do you find that patients are comfortable or confident sharing their hopes and expectations for treatment? I would say that many patients are extremely confident, confident enough to uh, want to interject that really from the beginning, first visits, trying to talk about their priorities, their goals, and I think that's very appropriate. Sometimes they've already been online and have read about things that you should talk about with your doctor, questions you should ask, and are emboldened by that. Beyond that, I think that uh, they certainly tend to be very inclined to talk about it when they're invited to by the, the physician. If the physician asks uh, anything about, well, what are your priorities, uh, they will overwhelmingly uh, be gratified and inclined to uh, share that information and incorporate that into their decision-making. Patients are almost always uh, very honest when you invite them to uh, give you what they expect from their treatment and, and, and hopes and expectations. And, and um, as we are actually reasonably good at trying to educate the patients what to expect from the treatment and from a scientific standpoint, you know, the response rates, the progression-free survival, what kind of side effects to expect. Uh, but 
you know, what we want from them is, you know, what, what are the goals that they are looking for? You know, yeah, I want to go for that cruise or attend that high school graduation or attend that wedding. And it's good to know uh, what those, those kinds of plans are because I sort of encourage patients to let me know what their plans are so that I tell them that's important and we can adjust our treatment schedules um, accordingly. What I've had more trouble with, actually, is sometimes them being a little bit more honest with me about the side effects they're facing and the challenges they're facing with an ongoing treatment. Some patients will try to hide that from me in the fear that I might recommend discontinuation of treatment or reduction of the dose, which could then lead to decreased efficacy. Surprisingly, I found that they're sometimes more honest about those kind of things with my nurses and nurse practitioners. So I tend to sort of encourage them to ferret out the kind of experiences that they've had with the previous chemotherapy and then tell me what's going on. And then I confirm that when I see them. But in most cases, patients are pretty open about their hopes and expectations. I agree with that, and I think when it comes to their um, hopes, or, or like or the big hopes over the long-term journey, the long-term prognosis, the long-term treatment, whether to have treatment or not, uh, I think we as physicians have a duty to try to build trust, to try to build a relationship, to get them to be more open about their hopes and their expectations and their values. And this is something... Um, you kind of learn by experience. And I, I have to admit that as much as I try to educate my patients, I'm learning from them, I'm learning about their personalities, and I'm trying to build the skills to use them with my next patients when, when it comes to their uh, respecting and trying to, the, to get them to open up about their uh, expectations and hope and how they want to be treated and what they're hoping to be achieved. So I think we as a physician have a duty to try to educate ourselves, to train ourselves, to build that trust with the patients so we come up with a really shared plan that would co combine the knowledge of the physician and the expectation and the values of the patient. How often do patients communicate their preferences and priorities for treatment, and is there a place for it? I think there's a lot of variability in how comfortable patients are in uh, stating their their preferences up front and in articulating their uh, their own uh, goals. And uh, this is really based on many things. Some of it is individual. There's a fair amount of generational differences and. Uh, historically, medicine has been more paternalistic, and and some older patients and, and some systems like the VA, there, there may be more people who say, just tell me what I should do, doc. And that's okay if they just don't want to, uh, to interject their views. But uh, many younger patients, I think, increasingly uh, expect to have more of a say, uh, to learn more and be active participants rather than passive uh, recipients of of care. Uh, this is absolutely uh, appropriate, and uh, we've really moved as a, a field of medicine from a more paternalistic approach to one that involves shared decision-making and recognizes there's often not one absolute best treatment approach, but a range of choices that are reasonable, and this should uh, integrate the preferences and the personal circumstances of the patient. So 
this is the direction that things are heading in, and I think many patients, and if not the patients, their sibling or their children, are trying to enable an active voice for the patient. And it is a, a good place for things to go, in part because uh, the, you never get more buy-in than when the patient is part of that process. And uh, they really feel, they understand why they're doing it. And uh, so I think this leads to greater satisfaction. And more than that, that's what the evidence shows. I think Dr. West is making a great point. There is a great variability among patients on how often and how they feel comfortable communicating their wishes and hopes and preferences to their uh, physicians. Uh, as he indicated, some patients would rather uh, just follow the, what the physician is saying, tell them just tell me the plan and they proceed with that, while others tend to be more engaged and try to discuss various options. Uh, I find it that uh, some patients also use the help of their uh, family members, whether it be a wife, a husband, to get the message across to their physician. So you'll have a, a relative or a family member who's more open about the preferences of the patient and the, the, the kind of the psychological state of the patient, their toxicity profile, so they, they'll be more communicating uh, with the physicians. Uh, again, I think the physicians have a duty and have a responsibility to try to navigate through this, to navigate through the uh, patient's personality, the family dynamics, so uh, to try to reach out and find out the information that they need uh, about their patient's preference. I agree, um, yeah, sir. I think um, it's, some, it's somewhat the physician's responsibility to ensure that he, he or she understands the preferences and priorities for patients. And usually they respond to that fairly honestly, uh, especially if there's a caregiver and family around, uh, if you directly ask, ask them that question, well, what are your goals? Um, here are the results from the expected results from the treatment. And given those results, what are your goals? Would you like to get treatment here or closer to home? Or, and what kind of treatments would you prefer? And uh, what I found in my practice is, is once it's laid out that way, uh, they are pretty often, uh, frankly, communicate to you what their individual preferences and goals are. How is communicating with a newly diagnosed patient about treatment options different from a patient with recurring disease? It's always important to consider the context for the specific patient when doing our communication. And one of the bigger issues is whether a patient is newly diagnosed versus has been uh, working with this diagnosis for a period of time and is, and is in a recurrent setting. With newly diagnosed disease, patients are often overwhelmed and, and uh, just don't uh, have the background information or the tools yet to process everything. And so we often hear that, uh, you know, you talk about the diagnosis and once you give that information that you have cancer or it's metastatic, everything that comes after that is a blur. And so we need to be very mindful of that and ask patients to repeat back what they've heard and what they understand. Uh, we may want to have additional visits after that so that people can process it, give written information so that people can have it home with them or you know, offer uh, videos or some other uh, tools so that patients uh, don't need to be relied on to retain everything after that first mention of the diagnosis. Ideally also, 
uh, if patients are accompanied by family members or friends, they can help uh, take that information in. In contrast, if patients have been uh, dealing with the diagnosis for a while, they may have a greater understanding not only of their current situation, but of the future options. I try to talk with patients, not just about here's the treatment we're on now, but here's what we would be thinking about in the future uh, if the scan looks great or if the scan shows progression. And so they're better equipped to process the information when it comes. They may have anticipated and learned about uh, a subsequent treatment option beforehand. So ideally that's going to be the case. Certainly cancer is one of those diseases that lends itself well to patients learning about their disease because it's high stakes, but it tends to be ideally longitudinal and somewhat chronic and enables people to learn more about uh, their situation in the light of day. So in the initial vis visit is all about educating and engaging. So you are trying to educate the patient as to the, the, the diagnosis, the stage, the implications of that stage, and what are the future treatment strategies. And then you want to engage the patient in, in, treat, in the treatment decision making. A recurring visit, on the other hand, is more about informing and then possibly educating. So you tell them what their latest results are and what your future strategy is. And, uh, and then, if necessary, educating about that strategy uh, for subsequent treatments. One of the things that I've learned is one of the most uh, important anxiety mitigators for a patient is confidence in their oncologist. If they are confident in their oncologist and knows that the oncologist knows the stuff and is acting in their best interest, patients have uh, tend to be less anxious and tend to be more open for suggestions and treatment recommendations. Is communicating with a lung cancer patient about treatment options different between one who is a smoker compared to a non-smoker? I think that there are only modest differences in our approach between a smoker and a never smoker. Uh, one key point is that nobody deserves lung cancer, and we really want to uh, somewhat tailor the message here. I have some patients who have a smoking history who have such guilt that they feel like they don't deserve care, uh, that they betrayed their family, or uh, and, and they're just overwhelmed with the stigma and the guilt of it. And so uh, one important aspect is that, yes, you smoked, but oftentimes people quit smoking a long time ago, maybe decades ago. Nobody deserves lung cancer. You deserve to be treated, and here's how we move forward. In a never smoker, the discussion's a little different, and uh, it is largely around, you know, why did this happen? Why me? And it's a discussion, of course, that they don't deserve cancer. It's unfair, uh, but trying to explain the uh, the uh, genetics and uh, the things that we're still trying to understand about why a never smoker would get lung cancer and put it in the context that it is uh, less rare than so many people think. And there's plenty of other people, including those who can relate to what they're going through, who they can connect with uh, and and I think really help them cope with this challenge. 
I don't think there is a major difference in communicating between patients with history of smoking and those who are never smokers. Having said that, I, I do think from the patient perspective, uh, there are major differences. Um, in my experience, a never smoker lung cancer patients always have the question is, why me? How did that happen? I've done all the right things. I've never smoked. I'm keeping a healthy lifestyle. Why, why me? So you have this challenge of trying to address that and get them to cope with that. Uh, the fact that um, a disease like lung cancer is historically linked to uh, smoking. Now we're seeing a change in the demographics of lung cancer where we're seeing an increase in never smokers. So I think the physician has to address that, that, that this question around and this frustration around why me. Um, however, when you're talking about a patient who's a, a, a smoker, um, the challenge is different, is different uh, because those patients tend, as Dr. West pointed out, tend to have the guilt, feeling that they've kind of um, um, messed up. And here it's important uh, to get the message across that, exactly as Dr. West said, no person deserves lung cancer. And irrespective of the smoking history, all patients need to be treated with dignity. Uh, they need to be helped. They need to have uh, the best options uh, that, that, that are available for, uh, for them. That's very well put, and I agree. Um, I think all patients, regardless of the smoking status, should be treated with dignity and respect. Um, I tend to understand the smoking status purely because there are some signs associated with it in terms of the probability of having mutations and actionable targets and the tumor mutational burden and other technical aspects. Because of those technical aspects, I try to understand the smoking status of the patients. But beyond that, smoking status has very little value in uh, treatment decision and patient management. That concludes this activity, Optimizing Shared Decision-Making in Lung Cancer. Thank you for joining myself, Dr. West, and Dr. Elamine. We hope this discussion has been useful for improving the clinical experience between physicians and patients please make sure to complete the post-test to receive CME credit. Thank you. This activity was provided in partnership by the Academy for Continued Healthcare Learning and MD Anderson Cancer Center. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.